<laughs> Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This is episode 211, and it's called Jesus H. Christ Part 3, Hammers and Smells. And I am Rob H. Bell, because <laughs> Jesus and I have the same middle initial. My middle uh, name is Holmes, Robert Holmes Bell Jr., so uh, we have that in common. And actually, at the end of this, it's almost like an audio book before the book, at the end of this uh, Robcast series, will end, and I'll tell you what the H stands for. But we're not there yet. We have a long ways to go. Uh, and the subtitle, at least for now, Jesus H. Christ, the man, the mystery, the middle initial. I know, it's just fun to say. Um, tour, I'll be, um, the tour rolls on, the Holy Shift tour rolls on. Pete Rollins is opening next up, Nashville and Atlanta. We're coming your way in the middle of October, and as far as I know, there are still a few uh, tickets for both of those cities, and there's some spots left for the two-day event here in November at the Improv. So uh, all that is cooking, but right now what's cooking is part three, Hammers and Smells. And uh, so what I want to do is I want to show you, I don't know if it's called a pattern, it's something very odd that happens in the stories about Jesus, but also if you look at the larger unfolding of that pattern, it becomes more like a progression, or you could say an evolution, or uh, maybe at a deeper level, a denial. Um, so I realize saying that up front tells you nothing. <laughs> so here's what I mean. In the Gospel of Matthew, notice this passage. A man with leprosy comes and he kneels before Jesus and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man and said, I am willing, be clean. Immediately, the man was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift commanded as a testimony to them. Now, uh, the whole thing behind leprosy is that made a person ceremonially unclean. And this was all laid out in exquisite detail, very specifically in the book of Leviticus. So uh, this was not an unusual thing that if somebody had some sort of skin disease that rendered them ceremonially unclean, and then they became healed or clean, you would then go to the priest who would essentially make it legit, make it official. So that part is not strange. Jesus saying, a first century Jewish rabbi saying to somebody, oh yeah, there's a code, there's protocol for this, go show the priest. The point that I think is fascinating is before that, immediately the man is cleansed of his leprosy and Jesus says to him, see that you don't tell anyone. What? Wait, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, isn't that sort of the point? Tell everybody? Now, Hold that. A couple chapters later, chapter 12, a large crowd followed Jesus, and he healed all who were ill, and then he warned them not to tell others about him. So to the man who's healed of leprosy, hey, don't tell anyone, and then there's this large crowd, and he's healing everybody, but he keeps warning people, don't tell other people about this. Then, four chapters later, Matthew 16, uh, Jesus asked his disciples, his students, who do you say the Son of Man is? By the way, that's the phrase that Jesus most used about himself. And you know what Son of Man means? <laughs> he, 
It means human. Now, it has some echoes of the book of Daniel and some earlier uh, sacred texts within his tribe, but nevertheless, Son of Man is a, a very intentional, um, the human one might be a way to say it. Who, who do people say the human one is? And Simon Peter, one of Jesus' students, he says, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. And then Jesus ordered his students not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. <laughs> Wait, what? So the man who's healed of leprosy, don't tell anyone. The crowd gets warned, don't tell anybody about this. And then in this third story, a couple chapters later, his students, hey, you're the Messiah. Yeah, uh, great, but don't tell anyone that. Isn't that the point of saving the world, of being the Messiah, that everybody gets told about this? Then chapter 17, he picks a couple of his students, sort of the, the, the inner, inner circle of his students, and he takes them up on a mountain, and he's transfigured before them. Essentially, they have uh, almost like an out-of-body mystical experience in which Moses and Elijah, sort of the giants of their tradition, appear to them. They have like a burning man, altered state, experience of transcendent joy and revelation, might be one way to put it. Um, and this happens up on a mountain, and then he brings them down the mountain. As they're coming down the mountain, Jesus instructs his students, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man, a reference to himself, has been raised from the dead. So when he heals people, he tells them, hey, don't tell anybody. When he heals all these people in a crowd, hey, whatever you do, don't spread the word about this. When his disciples say, ah, we think you're the Messiah, he says, don't tell anybody. And then when his disciples have this extraordinary beyond words experience of the past, the present, the future, the divine, what he tells them is, uh, keep this on the down low, could you? It's like, if you're a disciple, you've just had your mind blown. What? And what the rabbi says is, it's essentially, he says like, hey, fellas, can you uh, keep this on the down low for a bit, you know, will you? It's like, keep this under your hat until later. Now, in case there's like a, well, that must just be the gospel of Matthew, because each of these gospels reflect a different writer. The writer is writing to a different group of people, so they have all these different Jesus stories they can pull from, they can edit from, they can tweak here and there. So that's why within these different Gospels, you see similarities, but then you see endless little differences. These are different writers who are editing and shaping these stories because they're speaking to different communities who, are, who they want to hear different things. But if you shift to the Gospel of Mark, you notice a very similar pattern. In Mark chapter 1, the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. <laughs> oh, I love it. By the way, you can do it. We probably should do a whole episode just on the fact that throughout the Gospels, lots and lots of people are completely confused about who Jesus is. They think he's a glutton, a drunkard. They think he's demon-possessed. They think... But the one group that always is like, you're Jesus the Christ, etc., is demons. They're clear. They're very clear on who he is. But Mark just reports it as if it's like, yeah, this is kind of one of the things you do is if you're going to... Um, you know, drive out demons. You make sure you tell the demons um, 
but they can't say anything about who you are. But you know this. When you're doing something amazing and some demons are there, you've had this, right? When you're like, hey, demons, this is just between us, right? Got that? (laughs) Oh, my word. That is so weird. But then in Mark chapter 7, there's a man uh, who can hardly talk, who can't hear, and he's brought to Jesus, and his ears are opened. And as soon as his ears are opened, essentially the first thing... Jesus, he hears from Jesus as Jesus say, hey, don't tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. And then if you go over to the Gospel of Luke, you see the same thing happening. A man named Jairus, his daughter, uh, everybody assumes she's dead. He raises the daughter from the dead, and then Jesus told him to give her something to eat. And then it's odd, isn't isn't it? Isn't it interesting, the, the stories about Jesus, the odd details? Like the stories about Jesus raising a dead girl to life, and then what the writer wants you to know is he told them to give her something to eat. Um, and then her parents were astonished, Luke chapter 8, but he, Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Now, if you've never read these stories, wait, 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 wait. The storyteller wants you to know that a girl died. Jesus goes to her house, raises her from the dead, says to her parents, you really should give her something to eat, because dying, just you work up an appetite. And then the thing he says to the family is, make sure no one knows what happened here. So you get these uh, words about how people are responding to him. They're amazed, they're astonished, they're overwhelmed, they praised him. But then what we get from Jesus H. Christ, what he does again and again and again across the Gospels, is he does something like this, something miraculous, something extraordinary, a sign of the divine. And then he says, essentially, keep this on the down low. He warns them, keep this to yourself, don't tell anyone. Uh, This is an odd way to start a movement. Would you agree? because that's the point here, right? This is story. This is the story that is told to what would you say? Compel us, convict us, convince us that this is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. He's come to save the world, but apparently he doesn't want anybody to know about it. If he's the Messiah, why, when the disciples their eyes are opened, okay, we believe you're the Messiah. Just uh, okay, that's great. Just don't tell anybody. If you've come to fix everything that's broken, uh, if you've come to spread the word, then why do you see this repeated pattern where he does something, it blows people's minds, and then he says, "Uh, just keep this to yourself. Yeah, it raises all sorts of questions. And then there's the Gospel of John. In Gospel of John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 I think actually the really powerful reading of the story is Jesus' presence. Jesus moves among these people. He teaches. He is with them in such a way that the people who have bread share with the ones who have none. But 5,000 people get fed, and after that, uh, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, here it is from John chapter 6, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Yeah, it's like they, they reach back into their shared collective memory. Their ancestors, essentially, have been talking about this day, about one who would come, who would right the wrongs, who would make sure everybody had enough food. Essentially, you can see this large crowd is gathered, 
5,000 people are eating and uh, the crowd begins essentially to murmur, is this it? Is this is he the one that they spoke of? Like, is, is he the one we've been waiting for? Uh, and, and the line John gives you is, surely he is. So there's this growing conviction. Our people have been anticipating this moment, and now it's arrived. And then John uh, ha- writes this, Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So the way that John tells the story is he realizes these people uh, want to make me king, and his response is not excellent. Now I can really get the word out. Now we can really spread the message. His response is to withdraw again, because this is a pattern. When the crowds get big, he withdraws to a mountain by himself. Uh, Now let's spend a moment on that line. They intended to make him king by force. There's a way that this story wants to go, a very conventional way. You gather a crowd, you become well-known, rumors spread about how amazing you are, and people say, we need a king, we need a leader. There's there's a way that this story wants to bend, obviously, and Jesus resists that version of the story. Then later, they find him on the other side of the lake, and they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus' response is, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate your, the loaves and you had your fill. So this begins to pull back a bit of the curtain on what's going on here, because there's this pattern, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, a crowd gathers, don't tell anyone, keep this to yourselves, wait for later before you tell people. And then you get this line in John 6, the crowd, they've seen this miraculous feeding of 5,000, and they've been hunting for him, and when they find him, once you get here, they're, they're obviously like, come on, you keep disappearing, what's the problem? And he says, I'll tell you. You're looking for me, not because, it's almost like he says, not because you got the significance of what I was doing there with the 5,000. You did it because you ate and you had your fill. You're not trying to find me because of the food. And then he adds this line, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now, by the way, the phrase eternal life uh, that's a that's a that was a first century phrase. Olam Abba, life in the age to come. Eternal life essentially meant a particular kind of life lived in harmony with God. So for many people, eternal life means oh, this is about when you die. But uh, in first century, eternal life was a way of speaking of a particular kind of life lived now, almost like. In, light, in, in proper alignment with the divine. And of course, uh, that sort of life would go on and on and on. But what he says, you can almost smell a bit of maybe cynicism, a bit of, uh, uh, that isn't the right word, skepticism, that isn't even the right word, uh, distance, that isn't even the right word. But he's like, you, you people saw the miracle. And so you're coming after me, not because of the deeper truths undergirding the miracle, but you ate your fill, now you want more food. 
And so he says, essentially, there's something larger to life than just hunting after the next meal. It says almost as if he says, I'm trying to do something much more profound than just feed you. Now, if you're hungry, it's incredibly important to be fed. Obviously, this is in no way a denial of people having their basic needs met, food, safety, shelter, water, etc. But it's almost as if Jesus says, you got the food, but you missed the point. Or, Or another way, perhaps, what he's saying is, you can eat the loaves, and yet your heart remains exactly how it was. Or maybe what you're picking up in his voice in the story is, it's like the food trick, the miracle, the mass feeding. It's like it got in the way of the real thing he's trying to do. Now, let's back up for a moment. It's as if there's a standard Messiah path that it's expected, conventional wisdom expects him to follow. You know, heal people, do amazing teachings, gather a crowd, do miracles, impress, uh, have people speechless, um, have them wondrous with amazement. These are some of the words actually get used in the Gospels. Um, picture basically every superhero movie ever, right? You gain a crowd, gather a crowd, you do something superhuman, you get a following, you gain even more power. Um, and then, like in, in the first century here, clearly, then you take over the government, you exercise that power to its fullest degree, you whip things into shape, you get people to fall in line. Uh, you know, like the standard Messiah path. And so when you do then, of course, in the standard Messiah path, when you do heal somebody, man, go tell everybody, tell them what I'm doing. Of course, I'm taking over, and I need everybody's vote, or I need everybody's support, or... But in these stories, there's something about that standard Messiah path that Jesus is chafing against. I didn't come to do that. That line from John about... They wanted to make him king by force. He could become a king. He could accumulate and wield a tremendous amount of power. But without one person actually being transformed, they might be the same people. They would just have a different, better, kinder, less violent king. You see the tension here, right? You do something miraculous and you draw a crowd but you don't know why the crowd is with you. Why are they following you? Do they get the significance of the thing you're doing? Uh, Am I really helping them? Or are they following you just for the show, the trick, the miracle, the crowd, the bread? Does it actually change anything? Now, let me take you to another story. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 8. There's a, a Roman centurion. Now, pause. Uh, A Roman centurion is sort of the key player in this story that Jesus interacts with. The Romans had conquered uh, Israel. Now, for a good first century Jew, they believed the land belonged to God. The land was, in essence, sacred and holy. The land was a living thing, because the land, there was a command that every seven years, you would let the land lie fallow. The land needed rest just like other living beings, like humans. So for them, the land is sacred, it's holy, 
it belongs to God, and it has a certain living essence to it, to the degree to which it needs rest, just like a human being needs rest. So when Romans, who would have been considered unclean, like these, these people don't acknowledge this Jewish God, when the Romans conquered these Israelites, they're not just militarily oppressing and conquering, but they're defiling that which is most sacred to these Jewish people. So, so a, a Roman was despised. And not only that, but Jesus' tribe had a long-standing conviction that their God was the God of the whole world. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So you, as a good first-century Jewish person, part of Jesus' tribe, you had this belief that your God stood higher and above all the other gods. But what kept happening is you and your people kept getting conquered by these global military superpowers that didn't even acknowledge your God. They had all these other gods, like the you know Greeks and Romans. Like So when it says that Jesus comes across a, a Roman centurion, this man is like a living embodiment of the, I don't even know if worst unclean, horrific, oppressive. I mean, this man is the worst of the worst. And yet, here's the story Matthew tells. A centurion, so like a military leader, a Roman military leader says to Jesus, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus says to the man, shall I come and heal him? (laughs) Seriously, what a question. Shall I? The man says, my servant is paralyzed, he's suffering terribly, and Jesus is like, uh, do you want me to come and heal him? Like, yeah, why else would the man have come to him? It's such a strange story. When someone you care deeply for is sick, and you approach someone who is known for their healing, and they essentially ask you, uh, do you want me to heal them? Uh, yeah, yeah. And the man says, which is where the story gets interesting, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority. He essentially says, to, he says, calls Jesus Lord, which is mind-blowing. Just say the word. Uh, shall I come and heal? No, you don't need to. Just stay at a distance and say the word. It's not just that he believes Jesus can help him. He believes Jesus can help him from afar. Now, the text goes on. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Now, there's some wordplay going on here because what we saw earlier is when Jesus does these miracles and healings, people are amazed at him. But the one you see here is Matthew says, now, what Jesus is doing, these people are amazed by, but what Jesus is amazed by is what this man has said. So there's some wordplay going on here. Uh, And then Jesus says to the man, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. <laughs> essentially, Jesus says to essentially to these uh, to a first century Jewish audience, this man, this pagan heathen, worships other gods, military oppressor. These are the people who had perfected crucifixion as a torture execution device. This man gets it more than any of you. And then Jesus continues, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You could also translate that, the kingdom of God. (laughs) 
Now, let's pull that apart for a second. First, note the metaphor, feast. According to Jesus H. Christ, what is God up to in the world? Bringing people together for a feast. When you hear the name Jesus, is your first thought, oh yeah, the, uh, the one who talked about the feast. When you hear people talk about the future of the world, is your first thought, oh yeah, a great feast. Yeah, that of all the images Jesus could use for a view of history, a view of people, a view of other people outside of his tribe, the, the image that he gives is a feast. So this Roman centurion, who I assume would have been despised and hated, simply says, Jesus, uh, you don't even need to come to my house. You just say the word, my servant will be healed. That's the kind of conviction I have about who you are and what you're up to. And Jesus says, now this guy gets it more than all my fellow tribes, religious folks. And then he says, I'm going to tell you what, people are going to come from the east and west, and they'll take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Second then, note the geography. Many will come from the east and west. That's an inclusive term. That's a very uh, ancient way of saying from everywhere. That's an inclusive term for tribes from all over the world. This is the most expansive first century way of talking about the world you could imagine. And this was a very, very tribal world. You, live, you belong to your tribe. That's how you stayed alive. For Jesus, what God is up to in the world is bringing all the tribes together, everybody from every tribe. Yeah, that's, that's what he thinks is happening. Third, notice what he says next. But the subjects of the kingdom, essentially the people who think they're on the inside, they'll be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's as if he says, God is throwing a party, and people from all different backgrounds, from all sorts of geographic places, from all sorts of different tribes, there are people all across the spectrum who get this, who get that the whole thing, that's just, it's like headed for a feast. And there are people who see themselves as the gatekeepers who are in. Many of them don't get that this is what's happening. They're so wedded to their tribe, they're missing the thing that's actually happening. And then uh, Jesus says to the fellow, go and let it be done just as you believed it would. So he says, yeah, good, your servant's taken care of. Essentially, Jesus comes to announce a new way of ordering things. He keeps talking about a kingdom that's here now at hand, and it's open to everyone. You're Roman, you're a soldier, you're an oppressor, you're a pagan, heathen, godless, you have other gods, come on in. Now, the reason why I take you through that story of the centurion is at the center of the interaction between Jesus and the centurion is, do you want me to come and heal your servant? What do you think is going on here with me? Or earlier when he says to his student, Simon Peter, who do people say that I am? It's like in each case, Jesus is trying to discern what is going on inside the person. It's like he's looking for what's in the heart. And the centurion, whatever it is Jesus is looking for, he sees it in the centurion. The centurion, what do you say? He gets it, he sees it, he feels it, he knows it, he believes it. Something has taken hold. Uh, it's as if Jesus is saying, 
Are you with me here? What is in you? And this man has somehow seen something below the surface. Something has taken root in his heart. Something has caught hold. It's as if, yeah, 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 lots of people can hike to get some bread. But who is hungry for the thing happening below the surface that's way more than just bread? And what you see again and again with Jesus H. Christ is you see, it's almost like he's a bit skeptical of these miraculous healings because they seem in some ways at times, it's like he's trying to do something else and he's trying to navigate how to do these healings without them getting in the way of the thing he's actually trying to do way below the surface. Now, that's all a bit nebulous. Let's start to tighten it a little bit. So let's do this. I want to lay out for you two different kinds of power. So there are different kinds of power, and there are different ways of exercising that power. So here's one way of thinking about power. You have a boss. That boss tells you to do things. You have to do those things or you don't get a paycheck. So that boss simply applies pressure, like you need to, you need to fulfill your quota, you need to speed things up, you need to stay a little late today, and you respond because that boss can apply paycheck kind of power. Or you think about a parent who makes rules. You break the rules and you lose your iPad. You break the rules and now there's going to be an earlier curfew. You break the rules and you don't get your allowance that week. Or TSA. <laughs> and I've been on a few planes this year. TSA have this tremendous power to simply say to you, uh, no, you don't get to get on an airplane. So you do, you're taking off belts and shoes and clothing. You're letting them touch you all over. Are you with me on this? Because you want to get on that plane. And they have that power over you. The police can say, pull over. And you pull over because you don't want a ticket. You don't want to be arrested. You need to get to your dentist appointment. Or think about a teacher. A teacher has a particular kind of power because if you don't do it well, the teacher can grade you down or the teacher could send you to the principal's office. <laughs> so there's institutional power, hierarchical power, uh, authority, like civic authority kind of power, government authority power. There's raw physical force power. Like whoever has the biggest weapon can get people to do things. Somebody who's physically stronger than somebody else can often get them to do things simply based on physical strength. Uh, the nation that has more bombs can often get a smaller nation with not the same firepower to submit to whatever it is they want them to do. Or you think about blackmail power. Do this for me or I will go public and I'll tell everybody the truth about you. Now, this kind of power, it works in a fairly straightforward way. You apply this power. It's almost like you just push the lever, whatever it is, and you get people to do things. It's positional power. I get you to do this because I'm higher up the organizational chart than you are. I get the people to do this because I have the title. You get them to do it because you have the weapons. And you can get 
people to do all kinds of things with this kind of exercise of power. You could threaten someone with firing them. You can incentivize people. You can motivate them. You can withhold rewards. You can get an extraordinary amount of things done in the world with this kind of power. But the thing about this exercise of power is you can get people to do all kinds of things, good things, helpful things, fix school systems, feed the hungry. You, people can do all kinds of things because of the exercise of this kind of power in the world, but it can be done without ever reaching a person's heart. You can be extraordinarily effective without knowing what's happening deep in the person's spirit, essence, will. You, you can accomplish a fantastic amount of things without ever touching the heart. So there's that kind of power. But then there's another kind of power. Now, some have called these two kinds of power uh, right-handed power and left-handed power. What I just laid out for you, you could call that right-handed power as opposed to left-handed power. And by the way, one of my favorite writers, Robert Farrar Capon, C-A-P-O-N, or is it Capone, um, has done some fantastic writing on this difference between right and left-handed power. I call it the difference between a hammer and a smell. Hammers and smells. Hammer power, smell power. Here's what I mean. When I was 19 years old, I went to the Aragon Ballroom, I think it was like a Tuesday night, in 1989, and I saw the Australian band Midnight Oil. I can't, if you're not a Midnight Oil fan, uh, help me help you. I had been a bit familiar with Midnight Oil. They had just released their Diesel and Dust album, right? How can we dance when the earth is turning? How can we dance where our beds our, how can we sleep while our beds are burning? Are you with me on this? And I mean, I was like that incredibly impressionable 19-year-old. And uh, the Aragon Ballroom, my friends and I, we all got our tickets that were like $12 or something. And Midnight Oil took the stage and completely blew the roof off the place. And they have always been this band with, with a, let's call it a firm moral center, uh, it was this music, it was so thunderous and vibrant and pulsing, and it was about environmental degradation, and it was about the violation of Aboriginal rights, and it was about what's wrong in the world, the need to stand up and say something, make some noise. So it was activism, it was protest, it was raising a holy ruckus in the face of the world's injustice, but it was also pure joy. This band, and actually they reunited recently, and I just saw them last year, and they're as fantastic as ever. Um, Peter Garrett, the singer, is still on my list of favorite people ever to walk the earth, but uh, I, had I had seen uh, Righteous Anger and activism, and shaking your fists at oppressive systems. I had seen that, and I had seen joy. Um, 
I had seen the beautiful thing that music can do. But to see those two together, that you could be calling out the system, you could be speaking truth to power, you could be raising a holy ruckus against injustice, but you could be doing it from a place of joy, from a place of overflowing creation. It was, it was almost like at 19, I was like, wait, those two can, can coexist? You can subvert the system and laugh at the same time? <laughs> you, you, you can invite people to see things in a whole new way uh, and be smiling when you do it. I hadn't seen those two in the same place at the same time before. Um, something within me took root. Something opened up. It was like, wait, this is possible? You can be fierce and generous. You can be righteously pissed off and be warm and kind and welcoming. Y you can make a serious, joyous noise and be rooted in deep, deep frustration and anger with how things aren't how they're supposed to be. Those, those two can happen at the same time. Nobody was forcing me or coercing me to do anything. I wasn't there because I was getting points for it. I was there because my friends had said, we have to go see Minute Oil. And yet, oh, it took me in. Uh, I mean, there was a chance that I would walk out of that show exactly the same person that I was, I was when I walked in. That can always happen, but that didn't happen. I saw something so compelling, and I couldn't unsee it. That's the other kind of power. That's not right-handed power. That's left-handed power. That's not a hammer. That's a smell. Here's what I mean. A hammer works in a very straightforward way. You apply force to the nail... And when you apply force to the nail using the blunt instrument of the hammer, the nail goes in to the wood. Yes, baby? I'm starving. What do you want to eat? I don't know. Um, yeah, have one of those. Fantastic. All right. Apparently my daughter's starving, but she's going to have a banana chip muffin. And um, that's how that's going to go. <laughs> okay, I have no idea where I was. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a hammer works in a very straightforward way. Right-handed power works in a very straightforward way. You apply the power and you get results. A hammer as opposed to a smell. Uh, you, you, you smell something. You smell a bread. You smell a food that you've never had before, and suddenly you're hungry for something. Sometimes you're hungry for something that you didn't previously know existed. You, you, you get a whiff of a new way of seeing the world. And you want more, and now you can't imagine that you ever saw it any other way. It's like uh, left-handed power. It's like a smells, that kind of power. It comes in through the side door. It sneaks up on you. It comes in the quiet. It isn't the straightforward exercise of authority and institutional leverage and paychecks and rules and rewards and punishments, it, it comes in, it wafts in through the open window. You're like, what's that? And you go in pursuit of it. 
and something takes root and you're never the same again. Now let's go back to the centurion, because this centurion is under the authority of a particular kind of kingdom. He's living as a Roman centurion within a particular ordering of the world. The violent win, the application of coercive military force to conquer everybody in your way. Literally the motto of the Roman army, the Roman Caesar, was peace through victory, which was conquer people. That's how you make peace. But he's desperate enough. He's broken enough. He's grieved enough over the suffering of his servant that he goes looking for help. And he knows about this Jewish rabbi who's announcing a different kind of kingdom, a different way of ordering the world, not through coercive military violence, but through sacrificial love. He uses that word authority with Jesus, which I think is really interesting, but the story is about his heart. He's like, I understand how authority works, and there's something about you. Uh, There's something about you that... I understand there's something else going on here. It's like, I know it when I see it. This is more than just a trick or a miracle or an impressive display. This is about some other way of ordering the world. There's something more going on here. So some would say it's an evolution or a progression that Jesus starts, and early in the Gospels, you see him using uh, these signs, these miracles. In some ways, you could say, he starts at right. Some people would say he starts with hammers and switches to smells. He starts with right-handed power and shifts to left-handed power. I don't that uh, that that might be a little too simplistic. But what's interesting, especially with the John line, where he's like, "I'll tell you why you're following me. It's following me because you ate the bread and you missed the sign, the significance, the thing happening underneath it." Is you can see Jesus chafing. He's chafing against the conventional Messiah path, which is hammer power, right-handed power. He's doing something else. Notice this, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat, and he sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. And then he told them many things in parables. Well, what's a parable? A parable is a story. The word parable literally means to place beside. So you take something that people are familiar with and you place it beside something they aren't familiar with and you essentially say, it's like this. And so he's going out and he's telling these stories about a different way of ordering the world, an unconventional, post-conventional, alternative wisdom way of seeing the world. So he's essentially saying, you know this, that's what this new kingdom, this new realm of the divine is like. One of the stories he tells, one of the parables, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some found fertile ground. Why this parable? Well, in essence, that's him. He's tossing seeds out and some people see it, they feel it, they grasp it, they want more, and some people are like rocky ground. They're like the path that the seed, the birds came and ate it up. Then he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants. And then he tells another one. The kingdom of heaven, I'll tell you what it's like. I'll tell you what this thing that I'm doing is like. It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed until it worked all through the dough. Now, seeds 
and yeast work in very specific ways. They start small and then they grow. They fall on a seeds fall on a certain kind of fertile soil. You have to be ready. You have to be open. You have to be broken in all the right ways. You have to be in the right time and you have to be in the right place in the right space. Uh, yeah, think about the moments when you uh, experienced uh, left-handed power. You experienced something coming in the side door. You experienced, uh, you took a whiff of something. There was a smell that made you hungry for something that you previously didn't even know existed. Maybe you were just bored enough, you were curious, you were broken. Maybe the other thing that you were in simply didn't work anymore. Maybe you were lost enough. Maybe you were confused enough. Maybe you were open enough. Maybe you were just dissatisfied enough with the current system that when the seed came your way, when you, when you smelled it, you went, oh, that's so much better. It was exactly what you needed to hear. A seed takes root. A yeast gets mixed in and spreads. Seeds and yeast take a while. That's the thing about hammer power, right-handed power. It, it can often be very quick. You apply power and, and the nail goes into the wood. You tell everybody to work harder or they won't get their paychecks Friday, that sort of thing. You, you that kind of power can actually be very effective and it can work very quickly and efficiently. Seeds and yeast take a while. They're relatively slow. They demand extraordinary patience. Feeding 5,000, that's loud and fast and intense. There's a huge crowd. Everybody can see it. It's right out in the open and instantly people have the bread and the response is right there. But what you see here, it's as if as the gospels progress, Jesus H. Christ has a bit of a more and more and more, he's less interested in the large crowds. It's like he knows, yeah, 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 there might be a large crowd, but only a few of them actually are tuned in to what I'm doing here. Yeah, they came for the show, and they had their fill, but there's another kind of bread. There's another kind of filling. But seeds, seeds, you literally bury seeds. They disappear for a while, and then they humbly, quietly, tentatively make their way up out of the earth. Yeast is just little specks. You throw them into a big pile of dough, you toss them in and they essentially vanish, but then they gradually work their way all the way through the dough until they have radically transformed the dough into something else. Interesting, the images he uses in these par parables, it's quieter, it demands more patience, uh, essentially it comes in the back door. It's hard at first, to even tell if the seeds and yeast have been effective. Yeah, it's like there's this standard Messiah, how you save the world path that he keeps chafing against, right-handed power, because he's going for left-handed power. It's essentially like he's playing a different game. Or in the Gospel of John 12, he says, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, man, it produces many seeds. Here's the thing about hammers. You can only go one nail at a time. But man, if you're baking bread, who knows where those beautiful smells are going to travel and who's going to say, ah, oh, 
oh man, suddenly I'm hungry. Think about those moments when you woke up just a bit. Think about those times when everything tilted in a new direction. It usually comes in the side door, doesn't it? You get wooed, seduced, won over. We hear some new idea. We see some possibility that we previously didn't even know existed. And now you can't stop thinking about it. Sometimes it takes hold in such a way that you can't believe you used to see things any other way. It opens up something within you. You get a taste, and now you can't untaste. Something deep within you shifts, and now there's no going back. So at first, you can see Jesus on the fairly standard Messiah path, and yet he's chafing against it, and then it, and it begins to morph. He says things to disciples like, do you get it? Are you still so dull? He pulls them aside and asks them, like, help me, un- you know, interpret this. Did you see it? Did you get it? It's as if he's trying to infect his students with a whole new way of seeing the world. And it's going to take time, and it's frustrating. That line when he says to them, are you still so dull? It's taking time to catch on. The, uh, the, the, night, uh, the last night after they have their final supper, uh, the last supper, there's even this moment when the disciples keep falling asleep. You're like, it's perfect. They keep falling asleep, and he's trying to get them to wake up. Think about being a parent. At first, if you want to get your kid to do something, you just tell them what to do. When they say why, you say, because I'm your father. (laughs) Why should I do that? Because I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it, says the mother. You know, there's like power, authority, weight. Your kid says, this isn't fair. And you say, I decide what's fair, right? That works to a certain extent until they're three. (laughs) And then they grow up, they get older and wiser, their will begins to develop. And those answers, like, because your mother and I say so, those answers don't work anymore. Hammer, authority, right-handed power doesn't work anymore. And so as you get into later stages with your kid, you subtly begin to shift. You say to your kid more and more, well, what do you think is best here? You tell me. You work it through with them. You bring them into your reasoning. The worst is when that parent is coming down hard on a kid and making them do something, and they're just it's just raw authority power. Have you ever seen that before? And you can see it in the kid's eyes. The, the rule doesn't make any sense. The curfew's too early. Um, it's just a random, abstract boundary that the parent has set up, and you can see it in the kid's eyes. Like, this is dumb. I don't get it. You can see the parent losing them. And you, and you also, you can see the kid, they're conforming, and they're externally behaving. They're going to come in before a curfew, but you can see it in the kid's eyes, right? That resentment, they're not buying it. It's like all that exercise of right-handed power, but it hasn't done a thing to their heart. You can even see it sometimes, like you can just see them, that look in their eyes, like when they're old enough, they're leaving and they're never coming back. And so what you're as a parent doing very intuitively along the way is you're moving. Still, there are times and places when right-handed power, but you're moving from right-handed power to left-handed power. You're moving from hammers to smells. Years ago, I year I mean literally years and years, like 93, I was working with a group of youth and there was a we all had a boss who oversaw us and then we were all sort of head groups of the kids assigned to us and uh we were having this meeting with the boss, all of us uh who were sort of the underlings and we were discussing some policy with the kids or something. And every single one of the underlings, me included, agreed 
that this was the path forward. But the boss was like, no, we need to do it this way. And all of us who were actually working with the kids, we were like, that's not going to work. Like, the, the, Seriously, just trust us. That is not going to work. You're going to have so many more problems. I remember it getting more and more heated until the boss finally said, I am telling you on the authority of my position that this is how it's going to be. It's going to be how I say it's going to be. And I remember looking around the room because that's the ultimate hammer move. That's the ultimate right-handed power. I remember looking around the room. I was like, uh, what, 23? And just realizing, oh my word, he lost everybody. It's like he did it. He pulled that move. He didn't discuss. He didn't woo us into his way of seeing it. He just pulled out the hammer. And he can do that because he was the boss. But yeah, he lost us. He lost us. Which leads me to the devil. <laughs> Think about, there's these passages at the beginning of the Gospels when Jesus is tempted. He goes into the wilderness and is tempted by the devil. We should talk about the devil sometime, by the way, and what the writers are even mean there by, by the word devil. But uh, there are these stories where the devil tempts Jesus. He tempts him to turn this stone into bread. He tempts him to throw himself down. He tempts him to bow down and worship me. Um, and there's been, obviously, there's all sorts of ways to read the temptation in the wilderness, one of the ways you could read Jesus being de- tempted by the devil at the beginning of his work, he's just starting out, is in some ways what the devil is saying is, here is the hammer path. Here is right-handed power. Take it and rule that way. And what the temptation, the wilderness is, is a concise rejection of the right-handed path for the left-handed path. It's a, it's a rejection of hammer in favor of smells. It's like to the very end, he's refusing that coercive, authoritative, institutional, strength kind of power that doesn't actually change people's hearts. He ends up essentially being killed by classic right-handed power, literally a massive superpower, a military that's conquered the world, executes him because of his subversion. But even towards the end, when he's being arrested, he says to his uh, students, put your sword back in its place. Essentially, we're not going to do it that way. He comes to invite us to see this power in a whole new way. It's nonviolence to the very end. He even says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Like to the very end, every time he's offered the right-handed path, he takes the left-handed path. It's like he keeps saying, I'm trying to do something different. When you're dealing with heart, spirit, soul, when you're dealing with a human being being transformed, it's a lot more like baking bread. You're inviting people to become hungry for something they've never previously even known existed. Uh, let me wrap this up by saying a few things personally about what happened to me. When I was in my late 20s, we started a church, and the church grew, and it was a Jesus-y church. 
And when religious people think that you're successful, they offer you all sorts of things. Do you want to have, how many buildings do you want? Do you want to have a school? Do you want to have a seminary? Do you want to have a camp? Do you want to have a training center? What would you like? Would you like this piece of land to build something? Like people offer you all kinds of things when they think that in the religious world, when they think that you're successful, I could tell you stories. And I also noticed early on how many people, there were a number of voices that were like, just tell people, just tell them what to think, tell them what to believe, tell them what to read, tell them what not to do. Um, And as the institution that we had founded got bigger and bigger and bigger, suddenly you realized, oh, belonging to this has a certain power. Being a part of something that's perceived as successful has all sorts of power attached to it. Being in the position I'm in as the founder means I can say this, I can do this, I could tell people to do this, and they would do it. And at a young age, I was in way over my head because I could allow people access, I could deny people access, you could sort out people's jobs, you could put people on a stage and hand them a microphone. Like there was an extraordinary amount of power available. But what I began to see, and especially uh, the kind of power to sort it out for people, tell them what to think, tell them what to believe, this is right, this is wrong, read this, don't read that. Um, And especially because the institution, institutions bend towards self-preservation, the use the, the numerous invitations to use that power to make the institution stronger, bigger, uh, more money coming in. And to be honest with you, I mean, it feels like another lifetime ago. It was like 20 years ago, 19 years ago, 18 years ago. Uh, to be honest with you, it was like I had this, I don't know, this radar, this like alarm within me that just kept saying, no, 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 uh, No. And what I realized is that with a big institution, with all that possible power floating around, I realized that it was easy to encroach on that elusive and yet potent possibility that people might actually have their own experience that would shape them and captivate them and lure them into new ways of living and moving in the world. I realized that I was trying to do something else. I didn't have any of the language. I didn't have any hammers and smells, right and left-hand power. I just knew I was trying to do something else. I felt like sometimes I was trying to set a table for whoever wanted to come to a feast. And then, of course, I began to realize, oh, that's exactly what's happening here in the Gospels. I realized at some level I was trying to infect people. I was trying to infect them with something, with some sort of virus that would shift the whole thing. Yeah, and, and, and the, other, the thing I noticed is that the other kind of power, hammer power, you can get so many results. You can make people feel guilty. You can make people feel in or out. You can rack up incredible what looks like success. Um, you can claim numbers. Look how many people came. Look how many people did this. Look how many people we fed. Look how many people we helped. Um, you can get really effic- efficient There are all these little subtle ways you can build a nice little kingdom. And uh, Kristen and I, 
I remember having discussions. We'd be like, what is this thing? We're literally like 30 or 31. We're so in over our heads. But uh, I remember we would have these long discussions where I, we would just kept saying, we're trying to do something different than this. We're not trying to build something that's big and has all these outward external signs of, of success and accomplishment. I remember we just get, we're, we're trying to raise people's consciousness. We're trying to tilt their worldview. We're, we're trying to make, like set a table that'll give them something new to sit down and talk about and feast on. Yeah, I remember thinking, I'm, I'm actually trying to come in the side door. I'm, I'm trying to help people hear those whispers and longings that spirit is always on the move, always nudging us, always talking to us. This is probably why you're inherently suspicious of big religious things, uh, especially when religious movements and political movements uh, get like, you're either with us and with Jesus or not, that sort of thing, take this country back. I think you're suspicious because you intuitively know that Jesus came to do it differently and that every step of the way, he rejects the hammer. He rejects the right-handed power. At every juncture, he's telling people to drop their swords because there's another way to do it. Yeah, he comes... He comes to plant seeds. He comes to mix in a bit of yeast, and it takes a while. And then one day you wake up and you realize you're a totally different person. You, you, you wake up and realize that you've been captivated and it's changed your entire outlook. You've, you have new values. You, you don't move in the world like you used to. Yeah, it's almost like it's snuck up on you. And you realize that things that you used to care about, you don't care about anymore. You're hungry for all sorts of new food that previously you didn't even notice was there. Yeah. Yeah, it's the difference between hammer power and the power of baking some bread and some smells. <laughs> it's the difference between right and left-handed power. Yeah, and Jesus, at every step, he doesn't take the conventional path. He's here to do something different. It's always, always, always about respecting the individual. It's about your dignity and honor. It's about your right to choose and to decide. Rich young man comes to him. He says, sell all your stuff. And the man's like, I can't, basically like, I can't do that. Walks away. And Jesus lets him walk away. It has the utmost respect for a human being and the dignity and honor of a human being and your right to choose. He never ever obscures that or steps on that or interferes in that. At every step, just lets you take your path and never stops offering love, nonviolence. There's another way to be human. It will never be forced on you. You will never be coerced into it. You will never have to go to a mandatory chapel service? Could anything be more against the Jesus movement than making people do religious things? No, no, no. This is about you getting caught up in something, you saying, what's that? Wait, what? And now you're curious and you're hungry and you're pursuing it and you can't get enough 
and you're never going to be the same again. It's a power that's way, way, way more powerful than any hammer, any right-handed power could ever be because it works its way into your heart. And once your heart has been captured, you'll never be the same again. And that, my friends, is part three of Jesus H. Christ. Grace and peace be with you.